Okay, welcome everyone uh, today. We're, we have Angela Cassidy with us, who's a lecturer in science and technology studies um, at the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, and Angie has written a book um, that we're excited to uh, hear about today on a very controversial topic in the, in the UK, um, which is the issue of bovine tuberculosis and the relationship with badgers. Um, and she does this from that science and technology study perspective um, as, an, as somebody interested also in environmental humanities, our relationship uh, with animals uh, and humans. Uh, so I will give it over uh, to Angela to discuss and um, welcome to everybody. Welcome to you. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dolly. Um, yeah, uh, okay, so yeah, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to this. Um, it's great to be able to visit Norway for the afternoon. Um, I think uh, this new format and what it makes possible is, is, is really quite cool. So what I'm gonna do now um, is talk through very, as quickly as I can, just share with you some images uh, from the book and, and from the wider project, just to kind of try and bring things to life. So if you bear with me a sec, hopefully this will work. Okay, so can you see that? Yeah, brilliant. Hooray. So um, just to start off with, just to briefly talk about the, the origins of this book uh, and also the cover, even the, the process of deciding on a cover image became kind of ensnarled in the debate itself in that the publishers originally tried to use a stock image, which you can see on the left, uh, which is often used in UK media, which implies that these two animals have a much closer relationship in real time than they normally do. Um, and so I had to kind of push back on using an image like that. And in the end, they uh, commissioned an illustrator who produced an image that I think is much better in kind of getting across the idea that there's a connection between these creatures, but uh, it's one that's kind of attenuated and a little bit difficult to understand. Um, I also wanted to say in relation to the genesis of this book, it's been quite a long time in the making. Um, so I actually first heard about this issue when I was an undergraduate in zoology and one of my lecturers was very ranty on the topic. Um, and this book is also an outcome of two, I've been really fortunate to have two separate fellowships. Um, so firstly from uh, uh, research councils in the UK and then from Wellcome Trust to kind of really dig into this uh, issue. Okay, so um, just to very briefly give you uh, some kind of sense of the saga uh, that is the debate around uh, badges and bovine TB in the UK. So as you're probably aware, bovine TB is a zoonotic disease. Um, that was originally, as you can see in the quote here, uh, thought of as cattle tuberculosis. And um, by the kind of 1950s and 1960s, we had a post-war state-sponsored uh, disease control that was very, very, um, initially very successful. And as you can see in this headline, which I think dates from the uh, early 60s, uh, government was very optimistic that the disease was under control. Um, however, it wasn't entirely eradicated and um, in the early 70s, it was found that this wasn't actually bovine TB, but this was a disease that was affecting wildlife. 
specifically badgers, as you can see in the top right. And this is an animal that has a really long-standing contested cultural role in the UK. Um, this meant that we went very quickly from finding a single dead badger to a full-scale culling policy in the UK in the 1970s, and very quickly from there into a massive public controversy. Um, this then, uh, the initial culling policy was largely, not completely, but largely withdrawn. Um, uh, but the debate continued uh, through into the 90s and 2000s, where there was commissioning of new research, uh, which was um, a randomized control trial, which again was supposed to resolve the controversy. However, science did its thing and generated a whole load of new uncertainties and questions, um, which then in turn has um, mobilized and fueled a second round of even more uh, visible uh, public controversy through the 2000s. Okay, so um, again, I wanted to just give you some idea of, of the sets of ideas that I've been using to help me understand um, the history of how scientists and policymakers and campaigners have come to know these two organisms that both are, are very prone to ontological uncertainty. So both the embovis and the badger are really, really difficult to understand. Um, so firstly, um, so the image on the left is from uh, Bruce Lewinstein's work on the cold fusion and communication around cold fusion in the 1980s. Um, so exploring what happens when uh, scientific uncertainty has to be um, explored in real time and in the full glare of the media. Um, so I've drawn on these ideas and also work around um, policy and experts within policy and the expert policy relationship. So that's one set of ideas. Uh, secondly, work on um, care and knowledge and the relationship between care and knowledge generation, uh, much of which has been um, looked at in the context of um, laboratory animal biomedicine, um, but is increasingly being applied to the field. Um, thirdly, uh, work on non-human agency. So we have a, 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 agent, a very agentic sheep here that is not where it's supposed to be, but not just animals, but also non-humans as in wider environments and pathogens. Um, and looking at how these, when humans act, these other actors act back. Um, thirdly, uh, work that I was involved with on the role of animals in the history of medicine, where we developed a working method for um, understanding how the role that animals have played in history, which is partly by looking at the roles that are allocated to animals, so as in meat or livestock or charismatic wildlife and so on, um, but also a method of kind of following those animals by following scientists who have followed animals. And so that working method I then applied to the TB research. Okay, so the book itself, um, which uh, I should um, outline, uh, you can download for free, which is very cool because of Welcome Trust. Um, so in the book itself, just to give you a very brief overview of what's in it. So the first chapter kind of introduces the issue and also talks, I should say, a little bit about, you can see the two images at the top here, the backstories around bovine TB and around badgers in the UK and what was happening with those 
before the two were brought together in the early 1970s. So that's kind of the first chapter. Um, then I move and explore really closely this question of how we got from a single dead animal to a full-scale culling policy in less than five years. Um, and dug into the archive material in, in some detail and found this incredible map which was drawn by one of the um, government veterinarians uh, who initially found the dead badger. And then, as you can see as on this map, starts off with an initial dead badger, starts looking, government starts looking, they find more and more infected and dead animals. Um, government then becomes quite panicky about this, partly because they're panicky about all sorts of other much more pressing things in the early 1970s. And so that basically you have a very, very fast sequence between um, looking for a thing, seeing a thing, beginning to know about the thing, and then acting very fast on that thing. Um, so that's partly what was going on uh, at that time and why we have this very fast sequence. The middle part of the book is, explores what I describe as three central epistemic communities. So these are not quite disciplines, but these are networks of people who work together to try and understand the problem across science policy and the public sphere. So firstly, we have the animal health epistemic community, which is farmers and vets and um, the Ministry of Agriculture and the way in which they draw on traditions of disease control for animal health um, known as stamping out, which is basically to cull the herds, um, isolate and stop movement in order to prevent disease spread. And from their point of view, this is how you control disease. So obviously they then apply this to the bovine TB situation. However, it doesn't work so well because badgers are not cows and they're not so easy to control. Um, secondly, we have uh, what I described as the disease ecology um, epistemic community, which was composed partly of uh, conservationists and um, mammal biologists, but also of um, ecologists um, who were working with this group, uh, which you can see in the centre here, called the Pest Infestation Control Laboratory. So much like other post-war ecologists within government, so, for example, in the States, look, um, working um, around nuclear issues or uh, in Canada, where ecologists were employed to understand fisheries. Um, so these guys were employed to deal with pest control issues. Um, and bad, whether badgers were a pest or not was something that they were dealing with for a long time before TB. They were also dealing with other wildlife diseases and, and had rapidly concluded that wildlife disease is extraordinarily difficult to control through stamping out. So they have a very different understanding both of disease and of non-humans. Um, thirdly, we have uh, the animal protection epistemic community, which crosses over with the second one, but is much more normative, much more oriented towards protecting badgers and that's something that they were in full scale of campaigning um, by the mid-1960s. But also within animal protection, there are kind of different um, modes of knowing and modes of caring and interacting with non-humans. So, for example, this lady here is called Ruth Murray, and she had a very kind of, as you can see, parental kind of 
um, protective, literally protective approach to working with badgers. Um, this lady who has the, had the awesome name of Eunice Overend um, was also involved in uh, campaigning against the 1970s badger cull. Um, but she came from a much more of a uh, field biology and naturalist approach and was actually very vociferous about the idea that badger protection was actually a misnomer because badgers are perfectly capable of protecting themselves. Um, so we have these tensions even within badger protection and over the long term, what we see is shifting alliances between these three epistemic communities. Um, then I move kind of into the more contemporary aspect and I look at the relationship between science and policy in the 2000s. Um, how the Labour government is very keen on evidence-based policy. They commission new science, but with the expectation that it will resolve the controversy. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't give government the answers it wants, so they commission other expert reports. And then as we move into the 2010s, the um, controversy becomes increasingly public. And you can see with some of these images the ways in which older um, representations of badges are used as ways of talking about this in media, the way in which the um, protests against this become increasingly dramatic and carnivalesque. You can see Brian May right in the center of that uh, image and increasingly polarized and partisan political through the 2010s. Um, so that's kind of a very quick whistle-stop tour of what's in the book. Um, what I want to do to kind of close down is to just explore a little bit kind of where I can see we're at right now and where we might go. And I can see lots of smiling. Um, <laughs> so firstly, uh, in terms of the bovine TB issue itself, um, one of the things that I think is absolutely critical is to think about this also as an issue of human-wildlife conflict. And there's a whole load of research and policy frameworks and potential ways of talking about this problem that think about it in terms of badgers basically being very awkward animals to live with. Um, and the, I think that resentment is kind of driving some of the resentment and the desire to cull. And we can see this also in common with lots of other awkward animals. So first, you've got wildlife conflict. Secondly, I also think that thinking about less, we've seen a reframing from bovine TB to zoonotic TB to kind of almost environmental TB. But this also suggests that thinking about TB across humans and animals and thinking about what sociology of medicine and history of medicine can tell us about human TB could and should be brought to bear on the bovine TB problem. Secondly, as you can see with this awesome cartoon, which was published about, I think about three weeks ago now. Uh, so this is the map cartoonist who uh, is in the, the Daily Telegraph, which is kind of our major broadsheet right-wing newspaper, which has always been very pro-culling. Uh, but the map cartoonist himself has actually done various cartoons about this issue over the years. Um, and so it's kind of playing on the humor of the fact that we, have been trying to shoot badgers and you saw some of the other cartoons earlier there's a lot of um, playing with this trope um, but I think it's also touching into some really deep issues here um, that I think are in common between coronavirus and the bovine TB problem so particularly conflicts around care and what it means to care 
when we're trying to control a pathogen and control an infectious disease, whether we're thinking at the scale of a population, whether we're caring for individuals, um, who has power and agency. And um, uh, there's another thing, but I'm afraid it's just fallen out my brain. But anyway, so I think this, this cartoon is, is actually getting at some of the, the darker issues that we're really struggling with in the UK about, about dealing with this infection. Um, secondly, um, there's a real issue here, which is less to do with the environment or animals or pathogens per se, and more to do with the relationship between science and policy and media and wider public sphere. Um, so as I'm sure some of you have been following, we've had all sorts of shenanigans in the UK of a government that is repeatedly declaring it's following the science, um, but exactly which bit of science it is that it's following at any given time, and also the influence that scientists are having over policymaking keeps shifting. So in, in my view, what we've seen is a series of distinct power shifts in that relationship over the last two months. Um, but certainly this kind of um, symbolic invocation of the science is something that's been really large in this debate. And it's something that's um, through the history of bovine TB has become more and more prevalent. And particularly since the mid 2000s, the tendency of anyone, whatever they're arguing, whether they're for culling or against it, to invoke the science to support their position. Um, so one of the things I'm arguing about this is that that whole rhetoric rests on an idea of what science is that is actually quite fallacious. Um, that it rests on the idea, so I'm sort of drawing on the, um, <clears throat> the uh, image from Latour here, the idea of ready-made science and science in the making. Now Latour wasn't really talking about the public sphere, but I think this idea can be applied and um, that we have this complete division um, we have this idea of science in public, that it is a solid piece of knowledge, that it has authority, that it, it doesn't change, um, so on and so forth, that is completely at odds with what's happening with science in practice and in the making. And you can see this disjunct happening a lot and the cause of all sorts of problems um, beyond bovine TB. Climate gate is a really classic example of that, that what you have is just the exposure of normal science being used to delegitimize public science. Um, so what I'm arguing is that we need to get rid of that division and ideally actually possibly get rid of public science. Um, there's a piece that I'm working on at the moment that hopefully should be out soon, just a blog piece, talking about science, this idea of, as the big book of science. And what I'm saying is the big book of science doesn't really exist. And so what we need to do is get rid of those public myths about what science is and make more public science in the making. There's a recent piece by Andy Sterling where he's talking about science and using the metaphor of the memoration, that it's something that's constantly in motion. And so this is kind of what I'm saying is that that needs to become public and that actually will make science stronger and it can prevent a lot of these political shenanigans with the science or the evidence, or at least hopefully make it a lot more difficult to pull that kind of rhetoric. Okay, so I'm gonna finish it at this point. Thank you so much. Um, the other thing I'm gonna say just um, very briefly is that at the moment I don't actually have very many reviews of the book. So if you fancy writing a book review, 
please do. I would be very, very grateful. And thank you so much for your time. Okay, so questions. Great, yes. So if anyone have questions, just write it in the chat and I will unmute you and uh, call on you. But Dolly can start. Meanwhile. Yes, yes. I, I had a question. Um, and that is, you know, we got this introduction to the disease um, and there's the implication that the badgers are the vermin in the title, right? So vermin, victims and disease. So vermin I get, disease I get. But who are the victims? in this. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that particular word mm -hmm. in the title and what you were thinking on it is. Okay, so where that's coming from is actually because who the victims are is completely different depending on who you are in the debate. So for the badger protection people, obviously the victims are the badgers. Um, but for, for example, uh, farmers and vets, the victims are the farmers sometimes the cows but mostly the farmers um and that um this is actually a long-standing trope in kind of social representations of disease that you get this idea of victims villain villains and sometimes heroes except for this is a story where there are no heroes or at least not anymore um so it's it's exploring that idea so it's, it's um while certainly some campaigners in the debate are very convinced about who the victims are. I think the important thing is to observe that everybody thinks they're a victim in this. Good. We then have a question from Chris. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for this talk. Um, I feel like this is, I don't know what number of week where the things that people are working on just have these reverberations in our current experience. And, um, you know, I don't think on anyone's part was that intentional right no one started these projects with the global pandemic in mind hopefully anyway i guess um but i guess it's also something that people studying the environment are much more poised than other people for so um thank you for for such timely work um i have i don't know four or five questions i'll ask a <laughs> few of them quickly um a very specific one i think you were talking about the blair government and they had um uh, uh, commissioned some studies and then the studies gave answers that they didn't like and then they commissioned some new mm -hmm. studies. So first question is, what were the, what did those initial studies say that the government didn't like? Um, second question uh, is about economics. Where does economics come into this? Um, I, I don't know anything really about the particular case here that you're working on. So of course, I'm a lot of what I'm doing is processing through the current uh, uh, global crisis, which is obviously very, very different in many ways. But um, I'm I'm thinking about all of the commentary in the U.S. that, uh, from some people anyway, is basically saying, you know, grandma's just got to die so the economy can reopen, um, that kind of thing. Obviously, that's one extreme version of it. But I'm just wondering what how, what role does the economy or economics play in in this these various controversies? And I guess the third question is sort of just more broadly. Um, epistemological, um, because that's that's something that you are very much talking about. And again, something that is very much um, uh, happening around us. Certainly, it sounds like in the UK and certainly in the US, there are all these uh, ideas or registers of science and, and knowledge. Everyone who has access to the internet is all of a sudden an epidemiologist. Um, and you mentioned these uh, kinds of selective science or symbolic science as I guess the 
the Johnson government is is practicing. And in the U.S., we have you know um, conspiracy theory, which in my mind is sort of sort of rejecting the idea of science itself, um, at least in Donald Trump's government. So, um, does science really matter? Uh, I mean, right, there are government leaders of major governments that are are variously engaging with what we might, you know, very loosely call reality or, or scientific realities. So does science matter and how does it matter? Okay. Um, well, I think my answer for the, probably I can get at the first and the second together. Um, so to kind of expand a little bit, what I'm talking about here is the randomized badger culling trial. So this is a very, very large field experiment. And the original idea was to replicate the, the logic of the, the randomized control trial that you do in a lab, but across half of the southwest of England. Um, <clears throat> so that was commissioned um, in the late 90s, so very much on the back of the kind of evidence-based policy movement and the Blair government. Um, however, it was originally supposed to take, I think, somewhere between three and five years. In the end, it took 10 years. Uh, it was subject to enormous delays. Um, one of the key problems is that it was assumed that they could intervene in the land in exactly the same way they would in a lab. Um, and of course, you know, people live there and they had views. And so, um, you know, either interfered to stop the culling parts of the experiment or landowners wouldn't cooperate and so on and so on and so on. We also had foot and mouth disease in the middle of that. So we also have the agency of another pathogen right into the middle of it. So by the time it was eventually published, what it seemed to be saying was that um, culling could make a difference, but not enough to make it worthwhile. Um, and part of the reason why the group came to that conclusion is because it was a multidisciplinary group, including an economist. Um, so they came to the conclusion partly based on the cost benefit analysis. Um, so what they were essentially saying is, well, you can cull, but is it really worth it? We don't think it's worth it. We think there are other things, particularly around um, risk regulation, that would be a much better idea. Um, and what I mean by the, the other science is that then we have, um, because the Blair administration in particular was behind the scenes, obviously pro-culling, and that's what the ministry were expecting was evidence to support that. They didn't get it. They got a big mess. Um, and so we had commissioning of another expert report by the chief scientist coming from politicians which basically excluded the economic evidence and excluded the weighing up of alternatives in and but took the same data to present a conclusion that culling works and so that kind of process of what i describe as cake cutting between science and policy has kind of continued around this issue ever since and i think that's partly what we're seeing um, with some of the political maneuvering around COVID is, is a similar kind of thing. So it's partly about the framing and what evidence counts and which kind of expert you're listening to. Um, uh, so yes, within economics, economics, it doesn't feature very much in terms of the public rhetoric, but in the behind the scenes of the, sci the science, that, because it's never the singular science, there are so many sciences involved in this issue. 
Um, but economics is very, very important, uh, for example, within the animal health epistemic community, um, because the economic consequences of animal disease is why they tend to be controlled in the first place. So it's a form of care which is actually about protecting economic interests. And it is clearly a form of care if you look at how um, people within that group talk about it. Um, at the same time, we also see economics and ecology get on very well. And that's why we have economists within the RBCT group. Um, and so that form of economics is maybe weighing up slightly different things. And it's um, looking at the cost to government, for example. Um, the place where economics doesn't feature at all is in the badger protection uh, community, because that's really not their concern at all. Um, so economics is actually there, but it's, it's kind of very much within the backstage world of this debate. So I talk about the backstage and the front stage of this. Um, so that's, that's what's going with ec ep poor economics. Um, epistemology, um, yeah. I mean, the, part of the core of this is that there are multiple epistemologies and they're not all telling us the same thing. Um, the key point is, is that they're not telling us nothing just because they're telling us different things. And I think at the moment we have, there are many false dichotomies going on at the moment, but one of them is the idea that either we have certain knowledge or if we have uncertainty, we know nothing. And this debate, um, COVID as well, where the science is, is literally unfolding in real time and it's even more accentuated because of preprint archives and so on. Um, it means that it's very, very easy to flip from certainty, even if that certainty is we know nothing. And I think that's partly what's going on with the kind of conspiracy theory thinking. It's another way of coping with that scary, messy uncertainty. Um, so yeah, I, but science does matter. And it's really clear, you know, it, within this, while with, with bovine TB, it's quite easy for governments to kind of go, well, nobody actually really cares about this. Whereas with COVID, even governments that want to ignore the science, the science in a kind of much messier way, it's, it's such a difficult phrase to avoid, um, are still having to act because of it, because we're seeing the very real consequences of, of um, a disease that is affecting real bodies and, and hospitals and health systems. So yeah, it's, I don't think it can not matter. It's just that we need to make it matter in better ways. Good. Um, so I'd actually like to move up to the question that Aline wrote into. Mm. The Okay. She was talking about how she enjoyed hearing you talk about epistemic communities and how modes of knowing and caring are connected. So again, like what you talked about now, but she asked, and how does the public or the general public then fit into such a community? Okay, so um, so wider publics, where do they fit? So um, one of the ways in which they feature really widely, and again, I think is really important around COVID, is actually imagined publics. So it's, it's re really clear that, especially for policy actors and campaigners, that invoking a public who won't tolerate culling or who have this or that view is actually a lot easier than engaging with what pu multiple publics actually think. Um, there's still not enough research on what 
wider publics in the UK actually think about culling. The bits and pieces that are there certainly suggest that people's opinions are, are much more contextualized and much less polarized than the, that image of the public. Um, the other way in which uh, people writ large kind of fit is um, through their participation in campaign groups, uh, in on the ground action to kind of either prevent the, the scientific trials or later the, the, the um, implementation of culling policies. Um, they fit in terms of uh, the communities that are actually living with the disease. So, so they are there, but one of the things that I think is really apparent is that often the, the actors who are very, very active in the public sphere, in the media, don't really want to engage. Again, it's another mess that people don't want to engage with. Good, then we just go back up to Kenny, who also had a question. Yes, uh, thank you. For <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you very much for, uh, for your talk. I apologize for not having my uh, um, camera on. Uh, I have some uh, case of bedhead. Uh, it's a bit early in the morning where I am. But um, uh, I'm curious how the um, case of uh, badger extermination uh, in the UK compares with and is related to other wildlife extermination campaigns, either within the UK or outside of the uh, UK. Because I know that, uh, at least in what I've looked at, there's often an um, international element of exchange of how um, various ideas and methods and so forth. So okay. I was curious if you've looked at all about that and if you could say something about that. Okay. Do you mean um, other wildlife culls for controlling TB or for other issues or both? Uh, both. Both. Okay. So in terms of uh, wildlife culling around controlling TB, um, this is one of the things that drew me to this topic in the first place, is that there are many other countries that have bovine TB, many other countries where there's a wildlife element. Um, so, for example, in New Zealand, uh, the main wildlife sector is uh, possums. Um, and often UK politicians like to look at New Zealand and say, oh, what well, they're culling and it's not a problem. But the possum has a completely different cultural role an ecological role because it's an invasive species. Um, similarly, in the US, uh, the main wildlife sectors tend to be things like wild deer, which tend to be hunted anyway and everybody accepts that. Um, so it's, it's only really in the UK where we have this kind of very severe contestation around the idea of cunning wildlife to deal with this disease. Um, in terms of other culls, so this is where I think this really starts to show up what I was talking about, the, the contingency of the alliances between these three groupings, um, because many other forms of wildlife culling are done for environmental reasons so for conservation because there's an invasive species or just because ecologists think that a population is not is that is gotten out of control um, and those kinds of culls are often objected to by animal protection campaigners so it, it really shows up again kind of the differences in understandings of care when we're caring for an ecosystem or a population 
versus caring for indiv lived individuals. Um, and it shows the way in which this alliance between animal protection and disease ecology is something that, that has shifted over time and might well shift again. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Okay, um, then uh, Tina has a question. Hi there. Thanks Hi. for the talk. Um, I was wanting to build on some of the earlier discussion in response to questions about the issue of publics. And it's just a really simple question. I was wondering how rural urban differences map onto the epistemic communities that you talk about. Uh, I imagine they do, but um, but I'm interested in how how that plays out, and particularly re relationship to um, to different kinds of modes of knowing and and caring. Okay, yeah, I mean this this is a really again, it's where you have to think about the representations of publics and the imagined publics as well as as what actual people in society think. So again, coming back to this, this issue of, of what we know about public's opinions. So it's been a really widespread media trope that this is about rural urban conflict. Um, and actually one of the things I've noticed is that post 2010 and especially over the last couple of years, um, many of the um, issues and the, the the groups involved in arguing about badger culling increasingly line up with the argument around Brexit um, and the political polarization around that. Um, so there are real differences, especially as, as you, you say, around care and what it means to care, that, that for, for some of, some of these um, groups, uh, caring particularly for non-humans involves killing them. Um, whereas for others, it's absolutely about preserving the life of non-humans. So that's a really sharp cleavage point. Um, but whether, and it is one that, that's, that's it's, as I say, it's a very common media trope, but when, again, the, the data that we do have about public's opinions around culling um, doesn't reflect that really sharp rural-urban difference. What instead you see is that people in rural areas tend towards, you know, the percentages are a bit, bit higher towards culling, um, but it's still really evenly divided. A lot of people actually don't, don't really care about this issue at all. Um, and again, that's also where I think Brexit is really interesting, because prior to the Brexit debate, most people in the UK really didn't care about the EU. Um, so there's something very peculiar happening around political polarization that is kind of picking up on and kind of magnifying these dif differences that are, I think, when we're looking at what people writ large think, is actually much more messy and, and not um, divided into kind of yeses and noes. Does that answer your question? Let's see. Oh, yes, thanks. Yes, brilliant. I was, I was just typing my yes in, but yes, both counts. Okay, so I have a question too then that I'd like to ask. Um, and if there are other comments, we might have time for one short one after that. So it's time to, to sign up with that then. Uh, I just want to see if I can get the video to me. 
Yes. Okay. Um, I actually want to get back to one of the, the initial comments that Chris had about how, how it's fascinating how so many of these book talks resonate with ongoing debates. And I think it is because in environmental humanities, we are actually working quite a lot of, of relevant things. So have you, in, in working with this project, uh, experienced that your research has been, well, either drawn into or actually inserted into uh, this debate? And what has your experience with that been? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this has been kind of my constant fear all the way through because I'm, I'm aware at some point it's like it may well happen. It hasn't yet, I think partly because I have really, really resisted the pressure. So one, one of the questions that always comes when I give a talk, you know, when, there's a, when I have done kind of media interviews or whatever is, well, should they cull? And my answer is, well, th that's the problem in the first place, is that, that that polarized yes or no cull is, it's a MacGuffin, it gets in the way, it's a distraction from engaging with the real problems that are much more messy. Um, and so far, I've managed to continue with that line, I think partly because it means I'm saying something that's different uh, in the context of a media that's got really bored of this story. Um, and also in the context of people involved with this problem who are really bored of making the same arguments again and again and again. Um, so, so far it hasn't happened, um, but I suspect it might do at some point. Um, and if it does, the, to an extent, you know, people will interpret my work and mobilize it and use it as evidence in exactly the same way as has happened with all the natural scientists working on this. That's going to happen. The only thing I can do is, is try and offer another narrative that hopefully can be compelling of, of saying, well, this is the mess. It's a messy world. This is a messy problem. And we have to understand and look at that mess. Otherwise, we're just skating on the surface and we can't deal with it. Um, so that's kind of what I've tried to do. But so, so far, it's, it's worked. The fl flip side of it is, I think, because I don't fit with any of the narratives or tropes, that getting kind of traction for people to hear that, that message has also been quite difficult. Um, particularly in, in the policy context, for example, uh, over the past few years, ministers have, have often shut down any discussion of the history of this debate, partly because all the advocates in this debate are so fond of banging on about the history. Um, there's a very, um, very dominant idea across kind of policy and media in the UK um, that, that what we need to do is think about the present and the future and that the past ties us down and it doesn't help us solve pro policy problems. Um, and it's really quite difficult to push against that narrative, uh, where, particularly when you have people who've already decided that they don't want to think about the history. Um, so that's kind of the flip side of it is that it's not been taken up, but I think that's partly because it doesn't fit. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, it's one of the major challenges, right, of being a historian, like you say, is that, and really all humanities, is that what we're about is about showing that things are not black and white. They are not yes and no. They are very complex and messy and tangled. And that's not what policymakers like to hear. They like... Mm -hmm 
results, as you say, that supports the position, one position, a decision. Um, and uh, the kind of messy stuff mm. we tend to generate is not the stuff they like. Mm. Um, and I think that's, um, that's an issue that continues to face humanities writ large and, and historians, as you say, have um, been certain reputations for, because I've gotten it as well, comments uh, from coming from people who are doing contemporary or social science studies right now of, oh, but what can history teach us? Um, if you're looking at only things that went wrong, um, how can that teach us about anything? Uh, which, you know, as a historian, you're like, ah, you know, of course it can mm -hmm. teach you something. But, um, uh, you know, I think we need more studies like yours that look at the ways in which this scientific controversy develops, um, the, the way people align, the actor groups, and what they care about. And I think mm -hmm. that's what's really interesting in this is it's about care. And that it's not that people don't care. And to me, that's one of the things you see in all of these kinds of arguments is um, there's a tendency for people on one side to assume the other side doesn't care instead of recognizing, no, it's that the other side cares about something different. And that really matters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, certainly that's, that's something I always try and convey especially if I'm talking to an audience that is particularly invested in one side or another um, and I think it's it's something to explore further in the future um, I have some colleagues uh, in politics who are down at the Cornwall part of University of Exeter who actually been looking at this and the way in which you can get people together and you can find that there is actually common ground it's just that that common ground is not normally explored um, and that, I think, understanding how you do that with a very polarized topic is, is a really critical thing. And it's kind of where we need to go next. Um, in the 70s round of this argument, um, despite all those rapid shifts I described, there is quite a long period where the people who are later really, really harshly opposed are working together and are working together on the ground in a really practical way because they see that they have a common interest of trying to understand this problem. Um, so I do think it's possible. Um, it can sound very idealistic, but I think with any of these issues, the exploring the complexity is absolutely key to finding that common ground. Um, and that's where I think it's really important to, to look at that and explore the other ways in which people talk about these problems. Great positive way to end the talk of um, vermin, victims, and disease, uh, British debates over bovine tuberculosis and badgers, which, as Angela mentioned, is available for open access. So it's free for you to uh, read it. Um, so please uh, go to the Paul Gray website, and we have the link on our website. Um, that uh, goes to this book and think about the ways in which science and publics and controversy and animals all intersect in this story. So thank you very much for the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers.